Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, we've been reading through Colossians now for a while, and we're continuing. Today we're going to finish reading chapter 2 together and listening to what the Lord has to say to us through the Apostle Paul. So Colossians chapter 2. We saw very quickly in the first reading that we did in this book that Paul wants people to know the will of God. He wants us to know what it is that God wants in us, through us, for us. Now, a lot of times people say, well, I want to know the will of God. I want to know the will. I've got this crisis decision I've got to make. I don't want to make a mistake. So I want God to make it very plain to me. But we have seen some things. Paul doesn't just say, here is how to get the answer to your question. Instead, he's saying, this is much more of a process. There's something that goes before it. It's not just that we go and live our lives and do everything that we want to do and, oh, suddenly I have a big one here, so I want some help, and so then I go to the Lord. So we'll see how that is all spelled out for us in today's passage. And, and he wants us to understand it's not that it's hard to find the will of God. It's just that God's not some kind of fortune teller that we go to only when there's a big thing coming up. So, we have seen, we have seen as we've, we've read through the book so far, everything is about Jesus. Knowing the will of God is about Jesus. Jesus reveals the will of God. Who is Jesus? Paul's very clearly told us. He's told us that Jesus is the Son of God, the creator of the world, who has come here and become a human being. He's the covenant substitute who gave his life to take away our curse. He is the one who reconciled us to God. He is the holy wisdom. And for all who have been reconciled to God, he has become the focus of their, their lives, the devotion of their lives, the, uh, the center, the sovereign, the target, the Lord, the master, the source of all life. And so, we're going to begin reading at verse 8 today in chapter 2. Now, I know we read this last week, at least part of this. But Paul doesn't make divisions. He wrote a letter. We, I don't think you'll sit here while we read through and discuss the entire letter all at once. That's why we're doing it in pieces through, the, through these weeks. But, but Paul, Paul didn't make divisions. And so each week we read a little bit of what we read before and we read a little bit of what we're going to read the following week because as far as Paul's concerned, it's all one piece. We're going to read from chapter 2 and chapter can find things more easily in the scriptures and put the chapters in there. Paul just wants us to know Jesus and to know God's will and purpose in our lives. <clears throat> so it's one big, long presentation from the beginning to the end. But we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. 
For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new to come, the reality of Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So here, Paul begins in these verses, uh, starting at, at verse 13, he begins pointing us to how we live more fully in the will of God. He says, first of all, we were made alive in Christ. Now that ought to get you excited, for we were dead in our sins. Then he says, all our sins, all of them are forgiven. That means all of your guilt is gone. You're not guilty. It means if you have lived under a load of shame, you never messed up, you never did what was evil, you were never mean or cruel. It doesn't mean that at all. It means it's all been forgiven. It says that, that he has canceled the charges against us that condemned us. 
He disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, that does not say to you the same thing that it said to the first people who got this letter and read it. Because I doubt that very many of us have ever been a part of a triumph. Triumphs weren't something that happened all the time in the Roman Empire, but when they occurred, they were spectacular things. Triumphs were what the way that they celebrated. The victory of an emperor and his army, or some great general and his army, over the enemies, over their enemies. And so they celebrated these triumphs all over the Roman Empire. There still remain triumphal arches that were built as a part of the triumphs. Uh, the, the, um, there, there's one here that's in Rome. You can see and the armies would march underneath through the arch, this conquering army. They, the conquering emperor or general would ride through on some sort of chariot and all of the people would be lining the road. You can walk down the road today. It's called the Via Sacra. Let's look at the next one. Here it is. You have to buy a ticket, though. It goes right down through the middle of Rome, right through the Forum. That is, that is the actual pavement that the triumphs went down. The soldiers marched on. That's not all that went, was, was the boot of a triumph. Also, as a part of the, the parade, was the booty that they had stolen, the best stuff they had stolen, the gold, the silver, the art, whatever. And so, uh, we have a picture from inside one of the arches, one of the triumphal arches. This is the Arch of Titus. It's in the Roman Forum. And here it is showing a part of the triumph parade. Titus was the general who defeated the Jewish rebellion in 70 A.D., destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and here you can see the slaves carrying probably Jewish slaves that he captured and brought back to Rome as slaves, prisoners of war, carrying the items from the temple. There, you, the easiest to see is the menorah. That was the candlestick inside of the temple. So the triumphs. Yes, they would bring the prisoners of war, and they hoped always, they hoped to also bring the leader of the rebels, the king, or whoever it was, the chief, whoever it was that was leading them. And as the triumph went down the Via Sacra and through the Forum, the center of Rome, it finished by going up the Capitoline Hill where this chief, this king, was publicly executed for trying to withstand the power of Rome. And it was a great demonstration of power and force, a triumph. Now, the interesting thing about what Paul says is this. On the, cro the cross, Jesus Christ made a spectacle of the powers and authorities that lead the rebellious human kingdom. That's prisoners 
these triumphs. They made a spectacle of the conquered prisoners, of the conquered king. They demonstrated how great was the power of the conqueror. On the cross, Jesus Jesus proclaimed a triumph. Well, it didn't look like a triumph. It looked like a complete disaster for Jesus. It looked like a complete defeat. But here is the key to what Paul is trying to tell us in these verses. God has a different strategy. God's will is different from the way we rebellious human beings do things. We try to accomplish things, to control things, to, to make things the way we want by force. We're going to either by manipulation and convincing or by some kind of force if necessary, get what we want and get people to do what we want them to do. If you don't believe that, ask your kids. They'll tell you, you do it all the time. And what we individually do, nations, empires do, displaying force, displaying power, saying we accomplish what needs to be done in this world by imposing our will upon it. But Jesus triumphed differently. He did not at all accept self-centered, self-promoting, greedy methods the way the rest of us human beings. The one with all power, the one who truly is the sovereign king and lord of all things, he surrendered his life for the benefit of others, us rebellious sinners. Instead of power and force, which he had plenty of power in his hands, he rejected the self-focused strategies of us rebellion human beings and instead displayed his divine, absolute love. Empires like Rome had many triumphs. There are many triumphal arches. Because power and force never brings real security. Somebody else always comes up and says, well, I want that. And so they attempt to also use the greedy, power-hungry, threatening strategies that we human beings use on one another to get what we want and to control, trying to seize the empire's power. Christ's triumph is different because 
It was a completely different strategy. It's a permanent triumph, an insurmountable event. Selfless love, the love of God you see, triumphs over all. That's the strategy of God for changing the world. It's not about force. It's not about control. He's not going to make a single one of us who are here or who are on the planet. He's not going to make Christ. He has demonstrated his never-ending, absolutely faithful love, care, rescue of us. And he invites us to trust him. To leave our I've got to control this whole thing and run my life and get what I want strategy and instead to trust him. Not just from time to time, not just on Sunday morning, but every moment of our lives to trust him. And he has demonstrated that he's trustworthy by his faithful, selfless love and his triumph on the cross for us. So that he invites everyone who is willing to come to turn from their distrust, which is what our rebellious human strategies for getting what we want is all about. It's all about distrust. We've all had trust issues. Some of us still have trust issues. But I want you to know that it is not God's purpose for us to have trust issues. It's his purpose that we would trust him. That's why Jesus came. And so Paul is telling us here, do you want to know the will of God? Do you want to know the will of God? Well, then knowing the will of God is not just something we do at a big moment in life. Instead, we know the will of God by this minute trusting him and the next minute, all of our lives being lived in trust of God. And Jesus has said that when we trust in him, then he gives us his spirit. God himself lives with us. And we, we, we begin to know him and to recognize his voice and his prompts in our lives. And so his will, his strategy, the strategy of love and mercy, not conquest and domination, his strategy, we accept it as the correct, the creator's intent, the way life is supposed to be lived, the only way that life really works. So knowing the will of God is not about whether you should apply for a new job or not. Oh, at some point that may enter into the whole thing. Paul's saying the will of God is that you be reconciled. Not just, okay, I want a ticket to get to heaven. But that you live reconciled to God 
at all times, every day, every hour. I'm trusting in him because he's perfectly trustworthy. So his strategy for living is to live a life of giving love. So if I'm trusting in him, that means I'm letting go of the domination, controlling, getting my own way strategy of living. That's very common in our world. You've seen plenty of it. You've tried it. You've been the one who, who was forced to accept that from other people from time to time. That's not the way of God. And that's not his way for us. He says, trust in me and allow my will to be lived out in your life. So, we need to know Jesus. We've talked about that already. La last week we talked about, about how we need to listen to the eyewitnesses, the people who knew Jesus, who walked with him, who talked with him, who lived with him. The New Testament, we need to read the Word of God. But his Spirit in us, the longer we trust him, the more and more we know him. We need to listen to him. Our, our prayer, our prayer our, our, our preferred prayer should not be, well, God, I've gotten myself in a gem. Now, would you rescue me? Now, you can pray that prayer, and he'll help you. But our preferred prayer should be, Lord, what do you want to say and do through me right now? Not, I'll handle this, and if it doesn't work, I'll come to you, God. But before we ever get started, before I ever respond to this obnoxious person at work, Lord, what do you want to say through me to this person? What do you, what action do you want to do through me to this person? What is it you want? And then we cooperate with him. We say, of course, why? Why would we do that? Because we trust him. That's a part of trust. And because we love him, you see, those who have been reconciled to Jesus are devoted to him. They love him because of all that he has done to bring freedom and rescue to them. Jesus isn't a self-help guru we go to visit whenever we get in a jam. He's the creator, the savior of the world, who continually pours out mercy, love, and life. So Paul is inviting us, yes, to know the will of God, to live the will of God, to trust in the one who is our redeemer. And so... He continues writing, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for having mercy upon us. We've everyone been rebels. We've everyone distrusted you. We've everyone tried to secure what we wanted for ourselves. Sometimes by cruel and wicked means. But you have loved us. You're not like what we run into in this world. You're not about domination. You're about serving, giving love. And we have experienced that and we've been reconciled to you. Help us to trust you fully. Father, some of us face some difficult things. Some of us face some very unpleasant things. Some of us face some wicked people. And so I ask that you would pour out grace upon us so that we would not fear. We would not resort to the power tactics of rebellious people. But that instead, we will trust you and allow your love and mercy to flow through us. Thank you for being so merciful to us. We pray that you will cause us, everyone, at every time, to be a part of your saving, loving strategy to rescue the people of this world from the darkness of sin. We thank you for our Savior and for this meal that he has given us that reminds us of his triumph on the cross, that reminds us what his triumph looked like. Selfless giving love. And we are so grateful for it. As we share in this meal today, would you help us, everyone, to experience that love once again? We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon these gifts and make them to become for us the sacrament of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who on the night he was betrayed took bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. And after supper took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul has reminded us today of his death, of his resurrection, and of his lordship. So we bow in reverence and devotion. We adore you. All that we are, all that we have, it is yours. 
help us to fully give ourselves to you just as fully as you have given yourself to us. And may you be glorified in us as in us your will is done. Let's stand together and say the prayer that Christ has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Together let us proclaim our faith, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. The union of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.